In the summer of 2002, a buddy and I packed up our bags and moved to Mexico City from Canada to work at this little bilingual school right near the famous Angel. And we also found a place to live in a, what used to be tenement housing, but had been improved a bit since then and had an eclectic group of neighbors, local and other foreigners too. One guy we're convinced was uh, running from the law, a former strongman competition guy and he was really fun he was great with the ladies and uh lots of fun to exercise and and go for a jog with and just hang out there was a karate sensei with his family and he was just so um but he'd also just light a fire and play guitar and and bring the neighbors together to sing and and many others and then there was sean sean was a bit of a crazy guy you know from san francisco long-haired looked like he might have been a hippie back in the day and had kind of a nasally voice and would always talk about the the funniest things. Sean was always kind of, uh, well, let's just say, really, really interested in the green, <laughs> and uh, and and always had a, a kind of a positive attitude and laughed. But over the years, you know, he'd drop these hints of of things he'd done and people he knew. He'd mention that he had interactions with bands like the Ramones and and others in San Francisco and his brother used to play in these bands or with or open for these bands and you'd be like is this guy for real he'd talk about how he worked on a cruise ship and met his first wife who who uh who was from a very wealthy well-to-do family in Mexico City and we never really saw her but every now and then we'd see his kid and you'd think oh maybe maybe you know but he was just living in this kind of one bedroom little house amongst in the garden of this apartment area and uh and he just always fun and always had stories he'd talk about how his dad was a a marine and a surgeon or his mom was a real estate agent and a teacher but his dad invented this or performed that and you know and just but it'd be few and few and far between but over the years you know you piece it all together and you think Maybe this guy might have been running for the law too, but he sure had a whole bunch of adventures. He was pretty tight-lipped about it, but, you know, five, six years later, I stayed in Mexico City for 10 years. Uh, we met his brother, and his brother, yeah, sure enough, you know, was a cool dude and talked about the rock and roll days, but just like Sean, never went into too, too, too much detail. So I left Mexico to work in different countries, but came back. Uh, you know, seven years later. So this is about 17 years after I met Sean. And just recently, there was a knock at my door. And when I opened it, there was an envelope and it had a cassette tape in it. And this cassette tape was filled with two hours of recordings of Sean basically telling his life story. And as unbelievable as it seems... It matches some of the things he said. And, you know, so what <laughs> I don't know where Sean is or how he got this to me or why he got this to me. But um, I'm going to share some of the stories that that uh, that he 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 laid out and you decide for yourself. Is this Gringo Loco telling a true story or is it just imagination in his head and since i received the tapes i tried to contact him i can't get a hold of his wife who i've met i live in a different city so it's a little tougher and i don't know where his kids are but 
We'll see. We'll see if I can find it. But in the meantime, these stories are wild and crazy. So I'm just going to kind of play some clips from from uh, some of the tape and and let you decide for yourself. Is this guy for real? I don't know. But it sure is a fun story to listen to. Enjoy. story written by Ringo Loco. A story within a story. A book in a book. A movie in a movie. Unlike any other, the riveting journey you are about to embark upon has been done with all due respect to all involved. It will begin in Des Moines, Iowa, Go to Brooklyn, New York, then San Francisco, and the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, Marin County, California, Hawaii, and Mexico. The story starts with mom and dad in the 1960s, living in Des Moines, Iowa. Dad, a Navy SEAL lieutenant captain, Inventor of the one-size-fits-all bicycle helmet. Doctor, MD, medical doctor, acupuncturist, also climbed Mount Everest, and has done many triathlons. Mom, a school teacher, an artist, a real estate broker, and a mother of three beautiful children. The story will also include the music industry, bands A through Z, the movie industry, the family, Max Carr, Hills Angels, Rips, Thugs, Tunnel Man, Cablo, universities, the sports industry, Hollywood, Art, cars, helicopters, limos, hippies, war, protest, racism, segregation, fighting for human rights, rich, poor, homelessness, homelessness, having everything, losing it all, getting married twice, three kids, living in a different country, bringing together two countries to be one of the strongest in the world in the future, becoming the next modern-day Martin Luther King, fighting to end racism and for human rights and equality, sex, religion, politics, coronavirus, equal rights for women, The end of homelessness and world hunger, also world peace. This story ends in rich and fame, happiness in the future, starting from 1969 and ending in the future in the year 2030. That is 2030. Anyway... 
Mom and Dad, growing up in Iowa, decided both to go together to New York University, NYU, to become a school teacher, my mom, and Dad to become a doctor. 1964, they had their first son, named after seeing the first James Bond movie with Sean Connery. My dad had to buy the same car, of course, a Jaguar. Beautiful car. I rode in the back seat from Brooklyn, New York to San Francisco, California. This is where the story begins. 1969, San Francisco, California. Haight-Ashbury District, hippies, flower children, peace and love. Mom, Dad, and myself starting out in a little apartment in front of Golden Gate Park, close to, to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California, of course. Here in the Haight-Ashbury District, it's filled with hippies. As one walks up and down the streets, they ask you, do you want to buy any acid, weed, etc.? It's very trippy, and the people are tripping as well. Peace and Love, 1969, the epitome of a hippie child, a flower child. That was me. I'm in the middle of so many changes worldwide. Peace, war, Vietnam, racism, black, white, the world still so close-minded but not San Francisco to some extent. As a child going to school, on the bus, railway, trolley car, cable car, there was a sense of racism. Blacks at the end and whites up front. Back then, we had tokens that cost five cents. Can you imagine Buffalo nickels still circulating? Telephones, candy machines, arcade machines, chips, cookies, candy, ice cream, sodas, five cents. Anyway, as time passed in the center of San Francisco and all these hippies, me being one of them, my parents decided and by then had made enough money, so we moved. We were now in the Richmond District, San Francisco, almost as close as you can live to the Golden Gate Bridge as possible publicly. Beyond this point is all military to protect the Golden Gate Bridge and its surroundings. We had a big, beautiful house on a cul-de-sac, which is a dead-end street. It's gold. Behind our house was closed off. Nothing. No houses, only a private military park of Golden Gate Park. This was my playground. By this time, my parents also gave birth to my brother and sister. So, the five of us lived together. Growing up together with Golden Gate Park, a private section closed off to the public, protected by the military, and I can't believe it was all mine. It was five acres of grass, trees, birds, lizards, snakes, deer, and even buffalo. K 
Can you believe that? Buffaloes running wild. Wow, what a life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Talk about the future. You can have it. I wouldn't change a thing in my life. Anyway, let me continue. Where was I? Oh yeah, I almost forgot. Golden Gate Park. So here I am with my brother in our so-called backyard. As you remember, our dad, Navy SEAL, Lieutenant Captain, obviously military, all weapon related, and combat training. He bestowed upon us our first guns. Like many kids during this era, remember it's the 1970s, man. Daisy BB guns, it was fashion, baby. So here we are, the brothers together in Golden Gate Park with guns and ammunition ready to go. The only rule we had was don't shoot the buffalo. I'll be honest, we didn't shoot any animals. We love animals. We shot cans and bottles. Let me tell you, we had so many adventures in this forest be behind our house. You had to go down a hill to get to it. In the middle of this section of Golden Gate Park was a military hospital. It was on top of the hill. There was also a heliport. This is where the helicopters, military of course, would land the emergency patients. The helicopters would take off and land several times a day. As a kid, this was so cool to be so close to the, hot, the helicopters, the wind blowing so strong, the trees swaying back and forth. Me and my brother, with our guns, hiding in the bushes, pretending to be in the military. We were guarding the helicopters as they landed and took off. We were soldiers in our own mind, playing our games as children do. Maybe not like all other children, that's for sure. We were different than all other kids. We figured this out at a very young age. The example of us having real guns for it was other kids only in their imagination, only in their wildest dreams. Talking about dreams, we had a dream house. It was a wish come true. It was shingled on the outside, all wood and brick. It was huge, three-storied house with stairs made of brick going up from the street. On the left and right, trees and grass as you walked up the steps. A big beautiful door in the front of the house. As you opened the door, the living room was in front of you. The kitchen to the left and dining room to the right. Really big rooms. This was an old school house, San Francisco, California. In the back of the house was the backyard. This is where my brother, sister, and I would play on swings. In our grass field, big enough to play baseball, football, with our games, etc. This was also our playground. It was a very big backyard. With trees, plants, grass, and mom's vegetable garden. Oh, how she used to love working in that garden. 
We would all help her plant the seeds, then watch them grow. It's a lot of work growing your own vegetables. Dad was always studying to be a better doctor as an MD, medical doctor, and studying acupuncture. At the time, this was considered to be outside the box, very different, not accepted by the medical community, considered an outcast of society, which I would later in life be able to recognize and understand, that I would go through the very same thing. I would just be so different from everyone else. My dad also ran triathlons, of course, in San Francisco, California. I would run them with him. Can you imagine that? As a young kid, my sister, brother, and I were very fit. Exercise was a way of life. My mom also remember she's an artist, teacher, and mother of three beautiful children. It's a lot of work, as you know, to be a housewife, too. Also working, keeping the house in order, clean, wash the clothes, vacuum, sweep the floors, cook, work, etc., and be a good mother. These are the 1960s and 70s, many changes going on, not only in the lives of my family, obviously. Think about it. 60s, 70s, Kennedy, Nixon, and I hate to mention it in the same breath, but these are drastic changes like apples and oranges when you think about it. Hippies, war, protest, black, white, racism, segregation, politics, the movie industry, and don't forget about the music. Anyway, I'm again, again, I'm sorry to drift off. You see, I do that from time to time, as you'll find out if you stick around long enough to hear the end of the story, okay? Where was I? probably playing in the backyard or Golden Gate Park, right? Anyway, when I wasn't doing that, obviously, I was going to school and working. Yes, I was working and going to school at the same time as a very young boy. Going to school consisted of waking up in the morning, taking a shower, getting dressed, making my bed, cleaning my room, then I never did finish describing my house. On the third floor were the bedrooms. There were three big rooms upstairs. On the second floor, a guest room and a few bathrooms upstairs as well on every floor. As a matter of fact, but not to bore you, going down the big beautiful wooden floor staircase, yes, there was a beautiful Persian rug it was carpeted all the way up and down the stairs. It was amazing. The San Francisco style of houses, unlike any other, architecturally speaking, anyone would agree with me there. The streets, houses, parks, museums, galleries, art, museum. The people unlike any other. San Francisco, I love you. So I'm walking down the stairs to go eat breakfast after cleaning my room. Don't forget, always clean your room. A clean room is a clean house. A clean house is the law under this roof. Mom and dad very strict about that. 
after breakfast, it's time to go to school. Make sure I, I put everything in my backpack. Books, rulers, pencil, pen, paper, pencil sharpener, lunch. I always had a bag lunch and later lunch pails. Everyone remembers those. They were great. All different kinds of lunch pails. It was a label of who you were as a kid. I had Speed Racer on mine. What did you have on yours? Anyway, I'm going to school. I had to walk to the cable car in San Francisco. We have what are called cable cars. During the 1960s and 70s, cable cars took tokens. They cost five cents. So I always had to have my tokens, right? In my change, Lincoln Nichols, of course. I would sometimes find Buffalo Nichols, two-sided, of course. An Indian on one side and a Buffalo on the other. I would always save these, of course, knowing that someday they would be valuable and worth money. Collector's items, so to speak. I saved coins, comic books, stamps, magazines, things I thought that would be worth money in the future. It's crazy, right? Just a little kid thinking about money, saving money, investing money in the future. Let me tell you what I did before school. I had a paper route. Yes, I worked before I went to school. Imagine that. It's crazy, right? I'm a good boy. I delivered newspapers, the San Francisco Chronicle. What a great newspaper. I had a paper route near my house. Talk about Hollywood, right here in San Francisco. It was the best neighborhood. I had rock stars, movie stars, famous people, regular people, hippies, executives, every nationality you can think of. This is the USA, the United States of America, San Francisco, California. On my paper route, for example, I had, and are you ready for this? Jefferson Airplane, then turned Jefferson Starship, Janice Joplin, Grace Slick, the Doobie Brothers, the Grateful Dead, and they were my neighbors in front of me. Imagine, how cool is this? So after delivering newspapers on my bike with the two backpacks, um, you know, one in front of me and the other on my back, papers had to be delivered by 7 a.m. It's very early in the morning. I started my day by waking up at 5.30 a.m. every morning. I arrived at the corner from where I lived, and there I would wait for the San Francisco Chronicle truck to arrive and give me three stacks of newspapers. I then would have to put them together. Imagine that. What is that? Newspapers in the 1970s were delivered in piles. As delivery boys... Our job was to put them together. Let me explain. The advertisements in the newspaper had to be put together by hand. They were separate from the papers and had to be inserted by hand. 
Advertisements consisted of Sears, Safeway, Thrifty Drugs, and other stores, of course. Sunday was the worst day of the week for delivery boys. The newspaper on Sunday was twice as big and had twice as many advertisements, plus coupons. Oh, how the people in the 1970s loved their coupons. Everybody on Sundays, before or after church, would sit around the kitchen table cutting coupons. This was a way of life, everybody saving money. This was a great way to save money and spend time with the family, cutting coupons. Then, like everyone else, we would go to the supermarket, use our coupons, which meant standing in line for a long time. Because everyone in front of you was doing the same thing. The poor worker at the cash register having to count the coupons, the money, the discount. And if a coupon was expired, ah, forget about it. That was always a problem, expired coupons. The store wouldn't accept it, obviously, if it was expired. So you would have customers and employees yelling at each other. And this would make a long line at the supermarket take even longer. Finally, after that, you push your shopping cart to your car. In my case, a 1969 Volvo station wagon. This is what my mom drove. She said it was a safe car for the family. Then we would go home and put away the groceries. Not to get carried away. But I was explaining how I put the newspaper together. After doing so, I would, of course, deliver to 100 homes my newspaper on their front doorstep. If not, I would get complaints. And if I was late, imagine the complaints that everybody, uh, you know, uh, would give me. Because in San Francisco, you know, what they want is the uh, San Francisco Chronicle delivered early in the morning on your doorstep, on time. That's the way it had to be. After getting up at 5.30 a.m., making my bed, taking a shower, cleaning my room, then going downstairs, clean the kitchen, then make breakfast for the family and also making lunches for everyone to go to school, work, etc. I would deliver my newspapers, come home, get my school backpack, and do homework before going to school. Then go to school. Imagine. Let me explain. How I went to school. Everything is an adventure in my life. So be patient with me, okay? Anyway, let me continue. Going to school meant that I had the first walk, then take a trolley car, and then a cable car. During this time, there was still a sense of racism and segregation, even in open-minded, peace and love San Francisco. Can you believe that? Remember, it's the early 1970s. I remember blacks in the back and whites up front. 
restaurants, bathrooms, etc. Thank God for the change. We are all the same no matter what color we are. We are all created equal. So here I am walking to school, almost there. God, it's so much work only to start my day, beginning with my first class. School is cool. Always remember that. Stay in school, kids. You'll look back at them as the best days of your life. I know we all have problems in school, but wait until you get out. When you've graduated, it's time to move on with your life. Let me tell you, this is when the real problems begin. Anyway, let me get back to my story. My first class was violin class. I loved to play the violin. My neighbor was Hiroshi Nakamura from Japan. He was the first violinist and I was the second. I was really good at it. I was good at everything and anything that I did. That's a fact, Jack. Nobody can argue with that. After violin class, I would go to all my classes, eight in all. Like everyone else, it was a public school with a general education. Great schools in San Francisco. P.E. is physical education. That was a great class. I would be the best at all sports, all events in the P.E. class. I would excel in also track. I loved to run. I was fast. Also, I could go long distances, mile after mile. It was an addiction running. I got it from my mom and dad. They also loved to run. We did marathons, triathlons, etc. Anyway, not to get carried away again, but I won an award from the President of the United States of America. It was for PE, physical education. After school, I would then come back home with Hiroshi, my neighbor. We would go to his house. It was a really big, it was really big and beautiful Japanese style house. The first rule was to take off our shoes before entering the house. We would then eat a Japanese lunch. He taught me how to use chopsticks, also how to play the violin. He was my idol, inspiration to become the best violin player ever. We would play and practice for hours with each other in his house, my house, school, etc. In school, remember, Hiroshi was first violinist and I was second. We played in a 32-person orchestra. Going back to my story, after practicing violin and eating, I would then go to work at an Italian supermarket. It was a mid-sized market on the corner. 
I would work in the meat market, inside the supermarket. My first responsibility was to take a wet rag, a cloth, and clean the counters, tables, meat cutters, knives, electric saws for cutting bones. I had to clean everything. After washing everything down with a towel, with a rag, I then had to sweep the floors, pick up all the stuff, put in the trash can, then wash all the trays, dirty dishes, and the meat signs with prices on them. This was after I pulled the signs out of each piece of meat. After doing so, I then had to put the signs back with the meat. I would always forget what sign goes to what meat. It would drive me nuts. This was my job. I had to learn what the cuts of meat were. So this is how I learned. This job was very important to me and this whole entire story. So pay attention. Anyway, after this job, Yes, I had another. It was only across the street. This was an Italian delicatessen and restaurant. I would learn how to cook Italian food. Everything from pasta, spaghetti, ravioli, salads, sandwiches, etc. Then serve the food to the customers. I always dealt with customers in both the meat market, the supermarket, the deli, the delicatessen, and the restaurant, and also with my newspaper, selling them every day. A few years passed, always doing the same thing, and of course, after work, I would go home to eat supper with my family. Dinner was the best meal of the day, all of us together eating and drinking. It was milk for me, of course. I was just a kid. Let me tell you a secret. I used to hide the food that I didn't like to eat, for example, like liver in my glass of milk. You couldn't see the food. I was hiding it in my milk. So when my plate was empty and I was finished eating, I would get up to bring my dirty dishes to the sink to wash them, of course. My parents would ask me, aren't you, doing, uh, aren't you going to finish your milk? And my answer, was I, I'm going to finish it as I wash my dishes. After dinner, we would all watch TV. We had a black and white TV. Can you imagine all the shows in the 1970s? Wow. After that, we would all go to bed. This was the routine every day. Now, as time flies, I find myself in junior high school. This was big. 
It was huge. Presidio Junior High School, San Francisco. I now have been working and going to school for what seems like forever. School and work is a way of life. I'm now very experienced working in the Italian store and restaurant. My boss was a policeman. He had a gun and a badge. Also owner of the Italian meat market, the Italian supermarket, the Italian delicatessen, the Italian restaurant. Even at such a young age, I found it strange, very strange, that a policeman was cutting meat. How is it that a policeman is a meat man? I remember sweeping the floor one day and I found a crumpled up $5 bill and I put it in my pocket. Because the money was below the cash register, my boss saw me pick it up and he asked me, did you pick up anything off the floor? And I was so stupid and I said, no. He then told me to empty my pockets. I did. He, pick, he picked out of my stuff that I had put on the table in front of the two of us. He was picking out the stuff, you know, I put on the table. So uh, there was that crumpled up $5 bill with an X and a circle on the $5 bill. It was on, on it. And you know why? Because my boss told me he had put it there. He put the circle with the X on it and crumpled up the $5 bill and threw it on the floor. I told him this was entrapment, I said. It's an official police term. And I said it to the policeman, my boss, of a meat store, imagine. <laughs> anyway, I was fired. I lost my job. I went home crying uh, to my mom. And I told her the story. And she was so mad, but not at me, thank God. She was mad at my boss. She took my hand at that moment, stormed out of the house, and went back to the store. She went straight to my boss and said, How can you do this to my son? She was yelling so loud as she always did. <laughs> um, when she was angry. Everyone in the store could hear what she, what she was saying and what was going on, especially my boss. He said that he was testing me to see if I was honest. This was very important to the Italians and especially as my boss. And even more so because my boss not only Italian, but was a policeman. So my mother agreed with him, but she didn't agree to entrapment. She didn't agree to setting up a young kid like this. It just wasn't right. So we all talked about it calmly and I got my job back.
With some shame, I went back to work the very next day. We had to take time together, my boss and I, to establish that trust barrier. After some time, I was working the cash register. This was a big move and moment in my life. I had learned at a very young age the value of honesty. A man only has his word. Without it, you're nothing. After a few years passed, and I was now going to George Washington High School, still in San Francisco, of course, this was up the hill from Presidio Junior High School. This was where the big kids went to school. Wow, this was big, and so was the school. 3,000 kids in one school, imagine that. Going to high school was great, the best years of my life. It was so cool, I felt so grown up, but I was just a child. As a kid, I used to ride a BMX race bike, and also I rode a skateboard. I'm the first one in history to get a speeding ticket from a cop a policeman using a radar gun. I was going 30 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone, residential area. This required, because of the speeding ticket that I received, to go to court in front of a judge with a lawyer. The judge told me that I was the first in history to ever receive a speeding ticket on a skateboard. Ever. It had never happened before me. Nobody before me had ever had a speeding ticket on a skateboard. So sitting before the judge, he didn't know what to do with me because nobody had ever had a case like this before. I was the first one in history to have a speeding ticket on a skateboard. So he decided to give me what was called community service for three months on the weekends. This enabled uh, and meant that I had to wear an orange jumpsuit and pick up garbage on the side of the freeways, the streets, the parks, etc. What a drag. This was a lot of work. Like I didn't have enough already. Imagine Saturdays and Sundays picking up garbage in an orange jumpsuit. After a few months of this, I was done. I had paid my debt to society. I finally had legally taken care of my end of the deal. Back to reality, going to school, working, playing with my brother and friends. My brother had a rock and roll band. During this time, and all of us going to the same school, living in the same neighborhood, it was so cool. During this time, bands like Metallica, Slayer, Exodus, Motorhead, Death Angel, GBH, Megadeth, even the Ramones, 
all these bands and so many more. Every band A through Z my brother opened up for. He was playing all over San Francisco. And the world. San Francisco had all the bands. Every band you can think of went through San Francisco. This is the way I grew up, surrounded by rock and roll firsthand, hanging out in the music studios with the band members. Of now, what are the most famous bands in the world? These are all my brother's friends, more than mine. Remember, he's the big rock star, not me. I'm just his brother, living underneath and behind his spotlight. The weekend after I finished picking up trash for the last three months, I finally had free time. So me, my brother, and friends decided to go to Golden Gate Park and go skateboarding. As always, we first went to the Japanese Tea Garden. You do remember my friend Hiroshi. His parents owned the restaurant and tea garden in Golden Gate Park. It's a big tourist attraction in San Francisco. Next to it is the amazing garden with bridges, fountains, trees, etc. Next to this place is the museum and other places like the zoo and the aquarium with the most amazing fish. Golden Gate Park is so big, we would skateboard all over the park and San Francisco. After a few hours, we made uh, it to the Haight-Ashbury District. This part of the park was not only filled with hippies, but every nationality, everybody from all over the world was in that park. There were swings and slides, so we decided to play, and I was on the swings. My brother, about 50 feet away on the slides with his friends. As I got off the swings, my skateboard was below me. At that moment, a gang of black kids took my skateboard. I took back my board from the hands of the boy that had my skateboard, and I hit him with it. A friend of his behind me then stabbed me in the back with a charaded Bowie hunting knife. It went through my back into my lung. I couldn't breathe. It was a 10-inch knife Rambo style in my back. I fell to the ground. The gang of bad kids then took off. I was alone with a knife in my back. I was dying. I had to make a decision to lie there and die or get up out of the bushes and go to my brother and friends and live. No one had seen me or what had happened because it happened so fast. 
I got up slowly, walked to my brother. I yelled as best as I could because the knife was still in my back. And my right lung had collapsed and was now filling up with blood. I couldn't breathe, let alone scream. Imagine that. I told my bro I've been stabbed. I then fell to the ground unconscious. Remember, I, I remember seeing a bright light just like you see in the movies before you die. Anyway, I woke up with a crowd of people around me, an ambulance, police cars, policemen, and even a nurse. She was my dad's nurse. Remember, my dad's a doctor. What are the odds that out of all the people in the world, out of all the places, there's my dad's employee, the nurse. She saved my life, pulled out the knife from my back, and took me to the hospital in the back of an ambulance. So off we went, up and down the hills, through the streets of San Francisco. And you have to remember, back then we didn't have cell phones. We had pay phones. You put a quarter, 25 cents, in one to make a call. Imagine that. So the nurse, my dad's, in the back of an ambulance. Uh, here we are together going from Golden Gate Park to San Francisco General Hospital, where coincidentally is where my father worked as a medical doctor. And he would be waiting for me and his nurse. It was her day off and my dad was working at that time. Another coincidence. I think it's a sign, a blessing. Call it what you will. I will have so many coincidences in my life, it's sick. After so many of them, I think of coincidences as signs, a code, Da Vinci code, if you will. It's another piece of the puzzle. If you put them together, you can see the big picture. It's a work in progress. Anyway, my brother made the call to my mother to let her know that I've been stabbed in the back, literally. Dad's nurse was there. She pulled the knife from my back and went to the hospital. After hanging up the phone, my brother and friends went to the hospital, taking the cable car, San Francisco style. My mom called my dad at the hospital from home to tell dad at the hospital to wait for me and the ambulance to arrive shortly after the call. Everyone was at the hospital soon after. We were all together under the worst conditions. I was dying, almost dead. Wow, what a life at such a young age. I was hooked up to all kinds of machines. I remember being in what was called as the special room. This is the room where nine out of 10 people die. Yeah, real special.
<laughs> anyway, yeah, so here I am at 15 years of age, dying, hooked up to machines, controlling my right lung that was collapsed so I could breathe. If the knife had gone one sixteenth of an inch to the left, I would have been paralyzed for the rest of my life. Speaking of which, let me go back or flashback to when I was born. I was born less than one pound, immature at seven months. I was like a small peanut. I was so tiny, hooked up to an incubator, and they didn't know if I would make it then either. They thought I would die at birth. God and Jesus have been with me since birth. I also became a reverend, which is like a priest. I'm certified after being stabbed in the back and surviving. But that's later in the story. So stick around and let me continue. I eventually came out of that special room. I was going to make it. I was going to live. I remember waking up out of a coma a few days later. The first words out of my mouth were, I want nacho cheese flavored Doritos. Can you imagine? There was my whole family in front of me in my hospital room, me obviously in the bed, hooked up to all kinds of machines to keep me alive. I was so happy to be alive. In this story, this is only the beginning. I will later almost die several more times. I'm like a cat. I have nine lives. Now that I've woken up and eaten my Doritos, I felt so much better. After some time, I was released from the hospital. My lung that was collapsed had recovered. My back had stitches after extensive surgery that my dad did. It's all a miracle. It's amazing. I had been going with my mom to Glide Memorial Church with the great reverend Cecil Williams. You can find this church and the Reverend Cecil Williams in a very famous movie, which was uh, with Will Smith in the movie, and it was called Searching for Happiness, if I'm not mistaken. And I love um, Will Smith, uh, who goes to the same church and put the, the church in the movie uh, searching for happiness with the great Reverend Cecil Williams from Glide Memorial Church. And the great Reverend Cecil Williams, which is my reverend, a famous man working alongside the great Martin Luther King. Before working and during the time at Glide Memorial Church. My dad, Jewish. My mom with the Reverend Cecil Williams. 
I went to both places, Saturdays at the synagogue with my dad at the JCC, which is the Jewish Community Center. I learned everything in every way possible with every religion in the world. Sundays were with my mom at Glide Memorial Church. We were just about the only white people in this black church. You have to remember this is the 1970s. Times were different. Anyway, my mom, God bless her soul, taking me bravely to Glide Memorial Church. I sang in the church choir the only crazy-ass white boy to sing in this church, let alone go there. I'm so proud of myself, my whole family, for going to church. The great Reverend Cecil Williams of Glide Memorial Church, San Francisco, California, I thank him for making me the man that I am today. I owe everything to the great Reverend Cecil Williams and Glide Memorial Church, which I will later continue in my story. It plays a great part of my story. I go back to this church as a child, obviously, and fight for equal rights, not only for whites blacks, but I would later fight for human rights, no matter what the color, creed, religion, sex, etc. No matter what I fight for, I fight for equality and human rights and women equality. I believe that we are all created equal. I also believe that as an adult, we can individually make decisions on what we do with our own minds, our own bodies. And what I do with mine is, is my business. It's my body. I can do what I want with it. And don't let anyone tell you any different. Anyway, before I get lost again, let me get back to where I was at the hospital, right? Upon release, I went directly home. I had to relax, go through a lot of therapy, physical and mental. After a period of time, I eventually had to go back to school. What a soap opera. Everyone had heard about what happened. I didn't want to hear about it, let alone talk about it. Imagine, what a nightmare, what a life. At this time, all the famous bands, half of them my brother's friends, plus my bro's band taking off, getting big. This was a great distraction in my life, perfect timing. So my brother's rock and roll career would boom, along with all the bands you can think of coming out of San Francisco at the time. I was still working, no longer delivering newspapers for the San Francisco Chronicle. As you remember, 
Don't forget, I used to deliver the paper to many rock and roll stars. I eventually ended up becoming a babysitter. I got paid $10 an hour to watch the Doobie Brothers' kids. They're not called the Doobie Brothers for nothing. If you know what I mean. If you don't, you know, get it. You'll figure it out later in the story. Along with other rock stars, movie stars, sports, the NCAA, the NFL, etc. This story has only gotten started. I'm just beginning. It's going to be filled with so much action, adventure. This story is so Hollywood, with all due respect. This story is going to be top 10 of all time. I have all the confidence in the world about that. Just keep listening to me. Now, where was I? I hate when this happens. Oh yeah, I remember. Now, back to school, work, life, etc. It's good to be alive. I go to school Monday through Friday, just like everybody else. After school, it's time to go back to work at the Italian supermarket. First day working at the meat market. Now, the boss is showing me how to make corned beef. And don't forget, the boss is, my, is the meat man, and we'll call him that. Uh, the process is to inject the veins with corn syrup, and this is how you make corned beef, and other secret ingredients, of course. After that, I had to cut the cows, and I had to cut the chickens. It's not easy, but after so many years, I di it did get easier. Also, the prices and the different various cuts of meats. I had learned them all. My boss and I had built a relationship of trust, honesty, and respect. I was much more than an employee. I was now part of the Italian family. T-G-I-F. Thank God it's Friday. I worked so hard all week. My boss paid me as he did every week. I love payday. To receive a paycheck is the biggest reward after working all week like a dog. Upon receiving my money, my boss asked me, Do you want to go see Frank Sinatra? He's a friend of mine and he's playing live in concert. We will be backstage before and after the show. I told my boss, yes, of course. Who in their right mind would say no to that? Wow. What a once in a lifetime gift. Remember, I'm just so... I'm just a snot-nosed kid at the time. My boss told me to go home and get dressed. I was supposed to put on the nicest clothes I had. He asked me to put on a suit and tie. I told him I didn't have one. Why would I? I didn't need one. So I went home and I told the family I'm going to see in concert Frank Sinatra. 
everybody was like, wow, that's unbelievable. How? I'm going with my boss. I told my, bo my mom I need to wear nice clothes. The best she could do in such short notice was to iron my church outfit. I took a quick shower, got dressed, and before I could open the door to go, there was a man ringing our doorbell. It was a chauffeur. It was a limo, stretch, long, black, classy, elegant limo. Wow, what a limousine. And what the hell's going on, my mom said. She was looking out the door at the limo, and there was my boss. Wow, we have never seen this side of him before. What a handsome man in his black suit and tie, in the limo with a chauffeur, and what appeared to be a bodyguard, like as if he was the president or something. He yelled from the limo, Don't worry, I'll have him home after the show with Frank Sinatra. So off we went in the limo. Me, the boss, and his son. He was a big man. He also worked with me in the meat market. Everyone was in black, in a black suit and tie, except for me, of course. I was the youngest person in the limo and pretty much everywhere I went. I always liked the older crowd of people. Now remember, we're in San Francisco. You think we would be in Las Vegas. Frank Sinatra so famous and known for playing in Las Vegas, but not tonight. He has a special appearance here close to San Francisco is Redwood City. There was a showroom, a concert facility. This place held about 5,000 people. It was real classy, unlike any place I've ever been before. The stage was so beautiful. It rotated. Yeah, that's right. The stage slowly turned around in a circle. I would never again in my life see another stage like this one. It was amazing. Frank Sinatra, wow. I was sitting in the front row watching Frank Sinatra. This is so cool. Let me tell you something. This place was so different. When you think of going to a concert, one thinks of standing next to a thousand other people. Or if you're lucky, you have a seat. And if you're even luckier, you have a good seat, right? Let me tell you, this concert with Frank Sinatra had 1,000 tables with 6,000 chairs, all white tablecloth, elegant five-star restaurant style kind of place. It was so Hollywood, if not Las Vegas. You know what I'm talking about. It was so unreal, like a movie, a fantasy, a dream. But this was the beginning of my somewhat reality, at least at this very moment, sitting in the biggest table out of all the tables in this place, 10 feet from Sinatra. 
listening to him sing, watching him so close, I could touch him. I could vividly, I could vividly see the sweat fall off his eyebrows as Frank Sinatra and the Four Seasons sang and played their instruments. The place was rocking, so to speak. It was a completely different crowd from any other concert I had ever been to before. And let me tell you, coming from San Francisco, I had seen every music band from A through Z already. But this special night where Frank Sinatra changed my life in so many ways. I can't even begin to explain or put into words how this night would change my life forever. I know it sounds so dramatic, but it is Frank Sinatra. During the show, we had a five-star meal and the drinks, wow, amazing. I remember all kinds of tropical drinks, but the men, the real men, were drinking the hard stuff. So here I was in the front table eating and drinking with six men in black suits, looking at Sinatra, thinking, wow, this is the good life. It was a dream come true. So Cinderella. It was earlier that day, if you remember, that I was sweeping the floor. The show lasted exactly one hour and a half, like clockwork. This was a business. I could see that. Everyone wanted more, but that was it. The show was over. We sat at our table and waited for everyone to leave. Remember, we're in the cl closest table to the stage and the furthest table from the front doors, the exits, if you will, to get out. So common sense told me that's why we were waiting. As I'm part Italian and my boss is 100% Italian, I learned to keep my mouth shut as much as possible. I learned this at a very young age, as all Italians do, especially in the Italian family. As time passed, finally everyone was gone. It, it took like what seemed forever, but you have to keep in mind 5,000 people all so elegantly dressed, were in no hurry to leave. And imagine, I was the only kid there out of 5,000 people. It was so cool. I'm not going to lie to you. I was living the dream. After my boss, his kid, a man, and the bread man, and also don't forget the meat man. Also with us and a few other guys in black suits. We were escorted by bodyguards also in black suits to go backstage to see Frank Sinatra. We literally went 
on the stage, no longer rotating at this time, of course, and proceeded to go behind the curtain. I remember it being red to go backstage. There were so many dressing rooms. This is where the band members hang out. Anyway, as we walk through the corridor, a very long hallway at the end was of course the biggest dressing room with a star on the door that said Frank Sinatra. We had bodyguards in front of us, behind us, and to the left and right. I felt like the president or something. So much security. The bodyguards in front closest to the door knocked and we all waited for the door to open. Upon opening, we were greeted by, yes, another bodyguard on the other side of the door. Upon entering, we were frisked one at a time, like the police do to you when they check you for weapons. Finally passing security, also men dressed in black suits, we were able to pass. I remember looking from the door, a big, big mirror with light bulbs so bright going all around it. The mirror itself was square, three feet by three feet. Big, right? In the chair was Frank Sinatra. Before the show, he was in the very same chair. As the makeup artist applied her magic onto Frank, now she was taking all the makeup off. I remember, and can you imagine this? Hey kid, go get me a drink. Only in your wildest dreams, right? Sinatra asking me to go get him a drink. I wish I could remember what kind of drink it was. I'll be honest with you, I don't remember. I was just a kid, a hippie from San Francisco. What can I do? I can't remember everything. I am writing this book 50 years after all this stuff happened to me in my life. So be patient with me, okay? Now, where was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting Frank Sinatra a drink. Let me continue with my story. After handing the drink to Frank, I was asked to take a seat along with 10 other gentlemen, obviously in black suits. And I hate to keep going back to that. But what's up with that? My boss, the bread man, the meat man, and other unmentionables. Let's just say, remember, I'm telling the story with all due respect to all involved to protect family and friends. Many names will not be mentioned to protect their family and friends as well. Again, with all due respect to everyone and all organizations involved 
in this story. I have nothing but respect for everyone. Please remember that when all is said and done. Anyway, let me continue. After sitting down with the men dressed in black and having conversation, not me, of course, come on, I'm just a snot-nosed kid. The adults were talking, and believe you me, coming from an Italian family, kids learn to keep their mouths shut while the adults do the talking. Never interrupt the adults while they are speaking. It's an Italian law. I also don't remember or even paid attention to what they were saying at the time. At the time, I was so fascinated and starstruck. I was in awe with Frank. Just to be sitting next to him, uh, to watch his mouth move as he spoke. I mean, how often do you get to listen to Frank Sinatra talk? Everyone in the world has listened to his music. But to actually sit there with him as he's speaking to you, it's almost inhuman. He's such a machine. God, I love you, Frank Sinatra. After everybody was finished, talking, eating, and drinking, Frank said he was tired and wanted to go to bed. That was our cue, our time, if you will, to politely excuse ourselves and go. <laughs> we said our goodbyes and told him what a pleasure it was to spend time with him. But as humble as Frank Sinatra was, he said the pleasure was all mine. Escorted once again by bodyguards, we went down the long hallway, once again to get out to the backstage area. Like the other 5,000 people that had left through the main exit, we went out the back door. This is where Frank Sinatra and the Four Seasons went in and would be leaving from Just Like Me. As we went through the huge and I'm talking big steel door. It was big enough to be in Fort Knox. There was so much security. You again would think the president was here. Uh, always big men in black suits and always with guns. This was common for me. Unlike other people and certainly children, kids if you will. Remember my dad was a Navy SEAL so guns were always a part of my life since birth. Anyway, not to get carried away uh, like I so often do, Frank Sinatra, you know, has a lot of security. The funny thing, and it's not funny in any way, shape, or form, my boss, the meat man, had just about as much security as Frank Sinatra. And I found this to be very peculiar, very strange, even at such an a, a young age. How is it possible a meat man would have so much of everything in every way? Not to mention the bread man, 
and other unmentionable people. The same thing, it's crazy, right? I mean, like, I'm starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And at such a young age, I was so naive. I just didn't know, you know, at the time, what I was getting into. So again, here I was with Frank Sinatra and all these men dressed in black uh, suits, bodyguards, all with guns, that I can see under their suit and ties uh, with their fancy, shiny, polished black shoes. My boss, uh, the same thing, almost like Frank, the bread man, the meat man, etc., and other unmentionables. I will not mention any names during this story. The names are to protect the innocent, family, friends, etc. Everyone involved in any way. I'm telling this story not to incriminate anyone in any way. Let me make this clear and understandable for everyone and every organization. I'm telling this true story with all due respect. Anyway, let me continue. After again saying goodbye to Frank Sinatra, 10 limos all in a row, I don't remember which one we were in. It certainly wasn't the first limo. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, nonetheless, I took off with uh, what was to become my new family. I was inducted into the family. And it's a very big deal and very special event for anyone and everyone who is inducted into the family. It's an Italian family, and I will just refer to them throughout this story as the family. And that's all I'm going to say about that. nuts. It starts off of this idyllic childhood with mom and dad living the American dream and ends with him being made by the mafia. You know, some of it's got to be true. You know, everything I've Googled checks out. I mean, there's so much stuff in there you can't Google, but he talks about this story, this story, like he's writing a story. And then wouldn't you know, another tape pops up on my doorstep. So I'm just going to keep doing this if tapes keep coming. Pretty cool story. Let's see where it takes us. Thanks for listening to True Story, a podcast by Gringo Loco. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page at Sean Balin Gringo Loco Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Gringo Loco Pod catch our next episode one week from today.